Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are you aware that there's a t-shirt company that made a t-shirt that says nominate Delroy Lindo, you cowards? <laughs> I'm totally not. Yeah, there's a t-shirt wow. that they're advocating for you. <laughs> wow. Well, on the one hand, God bless them, whoever they are. <laughs> And on the other hand, my God, I hope it doesn't backfire. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's editor-in-chief, Patrick Gomez, and today we'll hear from SAG nominee and Oscar contender Delroy Lindo of The Five Bloods. But first... We have the Grammy Awards coming up this weekend, and I am joined today by our very own editor and resident music expert, Alex McLeavy, to break down all the big categories ahead of the ceremony. Thanks so much for joining, Alex. Yeah, happy to be here. Totally. Well, you know, I know you're here to discuss the Grammys, but we're in the thick of award season, and I have a few things I want to touch on before we get to the Beyonce versus Post Malone of it all. Um, this, uh, this past weekend was the Critics' Choice Awards, where Nomadland and The Crown won big. Um, although I will note that Promising Young Woman's Carrie Mulligan bested Frances McDormand, which leaves the Best Actress Oscars race kind of wide open after Andrew Day's surprise win at the Globes. Uh, it's one of the most competitive categories, I think, going going into uh, the Oscars. McLeavy, have you had a chance to check out a lot of the contenders this year for uh, the Best Actress category? I have, yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, the Promising Young Woman nom seems like it might be the thing for that film to win, uh, considering it's sort of been best in every other category. The fact that she was able to win that award suggests that maybe that's going to be the place where they recognize that, which makes sense because her performance in that is so good. Totally. I mean, I think that it's well deserving of of screenplay nominations and and director as it's been recognized. But I do think that this is its best chance at scoring a actual statue on Oscars night. So fingers crossed there. But that's not the only award news that we've had uh, over the past couple of days. The Producers Guild nominations were also announced earlier this week, and all the big contenders that we've been noticing at all the other shows have been being recognized. But there was a little bit of a surprise in that the Borat sequel was able to burst onto the list of the Best Picture nominees. Uh, It was the only comedy among all of the 10 nominees there. So that was a nice surprise. I appreciated that. And then on the TV side, uh, we're happy to report that Better Call Saul got the recognition that we all here at the AV Club think it deserves, uh, alongside fellow nominees Bridgerton, The Crown, The Mandalorian, and uh, Ozark for the drama categories. Do you have any favorites there, uh, McLeavy? I mean... As happy as you know I am about Better Call Saul, uh, until I think we all still at the AV Club agree that until j- hashtag justice for Ray Seahorn <laughs> for her <laughs> performance on that show, uh, individual performance gets recognized, uh, we're still going to be grumpy about it. 
Uh, I mean, and that is justified and right. And uh, <laughs> I, I, am, I am part of that uh, picket line. Um, but here, you know, I think the crown is a little bit unstoppable. And I think the recent Oprah interview with, with Harry and Meghan just made the royals even more on everyone's mind. And, you know, I, I, I could see that doing really well at the Producers Guild Awards. Uh, on the comedy side of stuff, Curb Your Enthusiasm is up against Ted Lasso, What We Do in the Shadows, The Flight Attendant, and recent Golden Globe winner Schitt's Creek. You know, I, I have a feeling Schitt's Creek is going to continue its its reign. It didn't sweep mm-hmm. the Golden Globes in the same way that did the Emmys, but yeah, surprisingly, still took in my home. Opinion. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, but you know, I think being all the supporting uh, actors and actresses being up against each other from drama and limited and uh, comedy uh, kind of muddles things. Uh, it's a little. It's a little tough to compare mm-hmm. um, Annie Murphy, who I honestly think was the best part of that show. You know, her work compared to something like channeling Margaret Thatcher. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's hard to compare those two things. But yeah, so I, I feel like Schitt's Creek is going to do really well here. But we will we will see on March 24th when um, those uh, Producer Guild Awards are, winners are announced. Um, but coming up even sooner than that are the aforementioned Grammys, which is the actual reason you're here, McLevy. Thank you for yes. rolling through those awards <laughs> with me, mm-hmm. though. And uh, you joined us when we had the nominees first announced way back in Thanksgiving. Now, normally, it's not the case that we would get the nominees that early and then have the the ceremony so many months later. But uh, the ceremony was actually supposed to first take place in late January, January 31st. But it was pushed back in hopes that they could have a telecast less affected by COVID, which ended up being this whole drama because they moved to the same night as the SAG Awards and the SAG Awards had to move. Um, it, it, you know, I guess it made for good headlines, but it was it was a little bit of a weird choice, I think. Yeah, it was especially weird considering, I mean, in January, I think we all still knew what the situation was going to still be like in March. And so this idea of moving two months so that you could potentially have it in person seemed like a really weird choice that we all kind of knew wasn't going to happen. I wonder if there wasn't some sort of like, not even procrastination, but just like, they'd held out hope that they'd be able to plan something. And then when they realized they couldn't, they were like, well, now we've got to plan what it actually is. Like we, yeah. we, we didn't, we didn't take that extra step. Um, but they have uh, put together a really interesting plan. The ceremony is going to include pre-taped segments as well as live stuff that will be spread apart on four different stages within the Los Angeles Convention Center, which is right next to the Staples Center, which is traditionally where the Grammys is telecast from. Uh, so there will be four different stages there with different audiences, kind of a little bit like the MTV Music Video Awards has been in the past, where they've taken over all of downtown LA or, or you know, New York City streets before. Um, so we're going to see a little bit of that, which is exciting. But they also are taking the opportunity to highlight independent music venues um, that have suffered during the pandemic. So we'll be getting performances from the New York's Apollo Theater, Nashville's Station Inn, and both the Troubadour and Hotel Cafe in LA, which I think is really cool. I wish that they'd expanded a little bit further beyond those venues that people maybe already know by name and, and really give some of these venues that are in uh, smaller cities a a, a chance to uh, get a little money, um, but yeah. also just a little recognition. That would have been cool. Yeah. But it's very Great. exciting that they're that they're choosing to do this. Mm-hmm. No, it is. I agree. I think it's nice. I I mean, I agree with you. I think everybody agrees once more that it would be nice if the coasts remembered that the rest of the country doesn't exist there, and that even us here in the small little hillbilly podunk town of Chicago. Uh, <laughs> actually have some independent venues that could be used some shouting out as well. But nonetheless, uh, the heart's in the right place, and I appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm sure there's logistics going involved as well. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure yeah. there is. But also, it's the era of Zoom. The logistics wouldn't be that hard, let's be honest. 
That is very true. Uh, but some of those people that you'll be seeing perform at those venues, uh, be it at the convention center or uh, across the country, are Bad Bunny, Black Pumas, Cardi B, BTS, Brandy Carlisle, Da Baby, which is not to be confused with Lil Baby, who is also performing. Yes. We've got Doja Cat, Dua Lipa, Billie Eilish, Ahayam, Miranda Lambert, Chris Martin, John Mayer, Megan Thee Stallion, Maren Morris, Post Malone, Roddy Rich, Harry Styles, Taylor Swift, and more that I didn't just rattle off very quickly. Uh, but it, it's going to be an exciting show, I think, um, particularly because... While it's exciting to see stuff that's live, when it particularly comes to music, you want to make sure everything's going smoothly. And I'd rather see pre-taped stuff than a whole bunch of technical errors, at least in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's I, I very much agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know, let's let's break down some of the big categories uh, of the night. You know, I think we we have the the big ones that we'll get to, like record of the year, album of the year, song of the year. But let's start because there's not a lot of overlap. We have we have a lot of fans both on staff and readers of the site that are big fans of the rock and rap genres, and there's not a lot of representation in the bigger awards this year for uh, particularly rap. And so why don't we start why don't we start there? Is that works for you, McLeaving? Yeah, for sure. So so there we have for best rap performance, we have Big Sean featuring Nipsey Hustle for Deep Reverence, Da Baby for Bop, Jack Harlow for What's Poppin', Lil Baby for The Bigger Picture, Megan the Stallion featuring Beyonce for Savage, and Pop Smoke for Dior. Uh, and then I'll go ahead and mention rap albums as well here. Uh, we have D Smoke's Black Habits, Freddie Gibbs and the Alchemist's Alfredo. J Electronica, A Written Testimony, Nas's King's Disease, and Royce to Five Nines, The Allegory. Uh, what What are your thoughts here in terms of who you feel like are the big contenders? Uh, I mean, the big contenders for the most part are kind of who you'd expect, you know. I mean, Nas at this point is probably more of an elder statesman nomination where, so this would be, you know, this would, if he wins, that would be the equivalent of, you know, Martin Scorsese winning for The Departed, I would say. Uh, you know, as far as the AV Club, we had Jay Electronica's written testimony in our best albums of the year. So uh, I'd personally at least be pushing for that one. I think a lot of other people would be too. Um, but there's actually mostly some pretty, pretty solid nominations in that category. And uh, how about for performance? I mean, do we think Beyonce trumps everything just for name recognition here for people that maybe not, aren't as familiar with this, uh, with the rest of the people in the category, even though there are giant names in other um, of <laughs> other nominations? I mean, yeah, it's it's one of those things where, again, it's not even just Beyonce, but uh, last year was, to some, in part at least, the year of Megan Thee Stallion as well. So Savage was inescapable for a while last year. I, I would be shocked if that ended up not winning best rap performance. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love Bop, I love Dior, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be thrilled to see Pop Smoke win best rap performance, but it's really Megan and Beyonce's to lose. Well, I think, you know, something we discussed when the nominations were first announced is that WAP is not represented here. Mm-hmm. And that was very much, I think, arguably the song of the year, just in terms of something that permeated pop culture in ways beyond the radio. And, you know, I could see also Megan getting recognition here uh, just because of that, you know, residual appreciation. Yeah, people are mad they can't vote for Cardi B, so they'll vote for her partner in crime, Megan. Exactly, exactly. Let's move over to the best rock performance category. Uh, there we have Fiona Apple for Shamika, Big Thief for Not, Phoebe Bridgers for Kyoto, Hayam for The Steps, Brittany Howard for Stay High, Grace Potter for Daylight. And then on the album side of things, we have Fontaine's DC for A Hero's Death, Michael Kiwanuka for Kiwanuka, Grace Potter's Daylight, 
Sturgill Simpson for Sound and Fury, and The Strokes for The New Abnormal. What are your thoughts here, McLeavy? Uh, so, I mean, two things here, right? It's in terms of album, you got, again, a couple of sort of Elder Statesman nominations here with The Strokes, Sturgill Simpson. Uh, you got the new kids on the block sort of represented with Fontaine's DC, uh, <laughs> Hero's Death. So it's gonna, it's kind of going to come down to whether or not they're going to do the usual thing the Grammys do, which is award the oldest and best known <laughs> name, uh, the award. But in recent years, they've gotten a lot better about that. So I actually think there's a good chance for Fontaine's DC in particular to take the Best Rock Album Award. And how about for performance? For performance, well, th- there's two things at work here, right? For the, the, there's a personal one here, which I know we talked about this last time. You know my uh, prejudice here, which is that I think Big Thief's Not is not just one of the best songs of last year, but one of the best songs of the past few years. It's a fantastic piece of art. Uh, I think it's surprising and great that it got nominated and 100% deserves to win. But that being said, you know, Fiona Apple, you know, also being nominated in the top categories also goes a long way towards increasing your chances of then when you're the only one from those major award categories nominated in these smaller categories. So Fiona Apple has a really good chance here, as does Haim. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting because it, it's almost like, do, do you feel like people are like, well, I'll get them here and not there, you know, because there's, there's always the interesting situation that can happen where someone wins for one of the bigger categories, but not the smaller categories, just because people are trying to spread the love. So it'll... It'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Yeah, there's a lot of horse trading that goes on in these in these sorts of things. And also, but also, you know, sometimes it's purely sort of pop culture splash can make a big impact too. I'll be curious to see if maybe, for example, Phoebe Bridgers pulls out an upset and wins for Kyoto just thanks to the buzz around her performance at SNL. Yeah, I mean, you, that, it's an interesting thing because pushing the ceremony back too, I think probably just messed with timelines a lot on the musicians side of things like just things that they were planning and and normal schedules of like what you would be promoting and maybe you would release a new single peg to the ceremony coming up so that you can you know have your name in the press and do all that kind of stuff and Mm -hmm. pushing it especially so close to the ceremony as they did uh i I do wonder how that impacted um rollouts uh, of other releases yeah for sure very much so all right, well, let's get to the bigger ticket items of the evening uh, and start off with Best New Artist. Um, there we have Ingrid Andres, Phoebe Bridgers, Chica, Noah Cyrus, D-Smoke, Doja Cat, Kai Trinata, and Megan The Stallion. What are you thinking here? Uh, this is, I mean, talk about a murderer's row of talent. Uh, mm-hmm. This is actually a, a, a tough category for me to parse. Um, there's and so, so m- female, ha- I mean, it's just it's fantastic to see uh, so many female artists represented. Yeah, so female have, and so many of them just doing really interesting, you know, uh, genuinely compelling music that's not just sort of following traditional pop formulas. Uh, everything from, you know, Ingrid Andres to Phoebe Bridgers to Dismo, Doja Cat, Ma- uh, Megan Thee Stallion, you know, even her sort of glossiest stuff tends to have an a slight edge of something more interesting going on. So that's that's a tough one. I mean, I really, Megan, again, just by virtue of pure name recognition and sort of omniscience in the pop culture landscape last year, probably uh, has a real good chance here. But it'll be, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see. Again, you know, Phoebe Bridgers could pull off an episode. Doja Cat could. There's all sorts of possibilities. I mean, all the names that you just mentioned are the are definitely the three that I think are the are the front runners. Um, but this is also a category that can can sometimes uh, surprise us, though usually not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You know, there there. I mean, don't get us wrong. You know, the history of the Grammys is littered with uh, 
with maybe not the best choices for best new artists. So you never want to grant the, the, the voting body too much credit in that one. Yeah, it can be a little bit like the uh, supporting actress Oscar, uh, where sometimes it can be it can be a little bit of a kiss of death. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, let's take a look at record of the year and song of the year. And let's start off by uh, just reminding me, um, but also any listeners that maybe are just like, wait, which is which again? Um, why don't you walk us through the difference between those two categories before we list the actual nominees? Right. Yeah. This is something that, you know, if if you if unless you have a reason to pay attention, it's an, there's no reason to be anything but confused by this uh, record of the year and song of the year. Both nominate uh, singles, individual tracks, not albums. Uh, so record, think of it more like recording, not not an album. Uh, and very often they'll overlap. But the difference is that record of the year goes to the performer, whereas song of the year is the award that goes to the people who actually wrote the song. So, you know, if for record of the year, whoever co- goes up to claim the award is just going to be the artist, whereas, you know, you've got a whole team of songwriters behind a lot of these nominees. Well, and those nominees this year are, let's start off with with record of the year. Uh, we've got Beyonce for Black Parade, Black Pumas for Colors, DaBaby featuring Roddy Rich for Rockstar, Doja Cat, Say So, Billie Eilish, Everything I Wanted, Dua Lipa, Don't Start Now, Post Malone, Circles, and Megan Thee Stallion, Savage. Uh, there's some great songs here. There, there really are. And I, I think, you know, I think there's a bit of, too, the, the idea that normal, in a normal year, conventional wisdom tends to dictate that whatever Beyonce wants, Beyonce gets. Uh, but I, I don't think it's quite as cut and dried as it might be during a normal year, especially because you've got Billie Eilish in there, who sort of became the newly minted, you know, favorite of the Grammys when she absolutely swept them uh, for when we all fall asleep, where do we go? So there's, I mean, they're clearly the two top contenders. But again, also very big records from last year include Dua Lipa, Megan Thee Stallion, Post Malone. I mean, these are all hugely popular artists that I, I wouldn't be surprised if any one of them ended up winning. Well, and one of the other things that I've, you know, taking a look at these nominees compared to past years is that a lot of times, you know, the the Grammys got criticized a little bit for including some elder states men and women uh who maybe didn't have as much of an impact that year and the the feeling was oh they just got nominated because like that's what the that's what these uh you know grammy voters happen Mm -hmm. to be seeking out and it's because of the age average age of the grammys voters and all that kind of stuff but this is a really um progressive is not the right word, but but this this list is embracing a lot of newer and different artists than I think we would have seen on this list uh, just a few years ago. Yeah, it actually, it really does feel much more of the times. I mean, you mentioned earlier how the ceremony in some ways is sort of taking a page from the MTV, you know, MTV's awards. And this is, I mean, this is a lineup you would also see on MTV. So this this feels more, this feels fresher and a little more relevant than, as you said, the Grammy sometimes got accused of being in past years. Yeah. Well, let's look over at Song of the Year, which again is, uh, so these are going to the songwriters behind Beyonce's Black Parade, Roddy Rich's The Box, Taylor Swift's Cardigan, Post Malone's Circles, Dua Lipa's Don't Start Now, Billie Eilish's Everything I Wanted, Hers I Can't Breathe, and J.P. Sachs featuring Julia Michaels uh, for If the World Was Ending. Uh, yeah, you you can already see some of the overlap uh, between, but for me, the more interesting nominees here are the ones that are just nominated for Song of the Year and not Record of the Year. Uh, you know, you've got Her, right? You've got uh, Julia Michaels and J.P. Sachs for If the World Was Ending. Uh, you've got the songwriters, you know, coming in for, uh, you know, Taylor Swift, who you get here along with Aaron Dessner. Uh, there's some interesting additions to this list that kind of makes it, to me, a, a slightly more interesting and fun category to watch play out. 
if you had to put money down, uh, what, are, what are you thinking are the front runners here? It's it's odd, you know. There's still, in a lot of ways, the the Grammys are still old school in that they really like to reward artists who are doing their own material. Uh, very often, you'll see if if one of the songwriters is the artist, that automatically increases the chance of that person winning. <laughs> uh, so, but in this case, actually, almost everyone here, even with the songs that have a large team of songwriters, like the Beyonce track, you know, it's still the there's still the artist involved in the mix here. So, I, I would be Again, Beyonce, you can never, nobody ever went broke betting on Beyonce. Uh, <laughs> that being said, you know, I'd be, I'd be happy to see a win here for Taylor Swift, for Billie Eilish, for her. It would be kind of my personal choice, but I, I think they're all strong candidates. Uh, I mean, agreed. And it's just, it's, it's a testament to how much great music there was this past year that I could think of six other things, uh, six other songs that I would love to have seen on this list as well. So it's, it's it's a it's a packed category uh, and will be quite competitive. As will album of the year, uh, which has this list of nominees: Jenny Aiko's Chilombo, Black Puma's Deluxe Edition, Coldplay's Everyday Life, Jacob Collier's Jesse Volume Three, Hyam's Women in Music Part Three, Dua Lipa's Future Nostalgia, Post Malone's Hollywood's Bleeding, and Taylor Swift's Folklore. Uh, before I get your take here, the, the main takeaway I have is that you see um, you see some artists that are not represented on song or record of the year, uh, which, you know, could be for many reasons. But I, I do think it's it's interesting that there's people that aren't represented in those other big categories that are here. But then you get others that are represented in all three, like Dua Lipa and Post Malone. And I think that that's, you know, interesting. And, and again, to what we were discussing earlier, will that help them or hurt them that people may feel like they've already voted enough for them. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is one of those times where I'm actually, I'm really fascinated to see how this one plays out for the reason that, especially the uniqueness of this past year, uh, there were certain records, I think, that for people became very big and significant, not because, as you said, they had any singles or breakout songs on them, but simply because the records themselves became uh, sort of massively influential and meaningful, I think, for people in the way that I think a lot of music did for folks this past year, uh, as we were all stuck inside our homes looking wistfully out at the places we used to hang out. Uh, and and that's that's where you really see, I think, something like Chilombo or uh, the Black Pumas album or these other records that didn't have any breakout songs, but nonetheless uh, became very big records over the past year. That being said, and as much as I love, for example, the Dua Lipa album, and the Janae Aiko album, um, I, I think this is 100% Taylor Swift's award this year. Not just because she's a Grammy darling, not just because folklore is a, a tremendous artistic achievement, but because there's something to its artistic creation during quarantine and its release. And the fact that that became so known and such a part of the narrative around that record that I think it really it ended up affecting people's reception of the music in a way that went above and beyond even as as good as I think the album already is really went yeah went past that and sort of achieved something more sort of culturally significant i really i i'll be i'll be astounded if taylor swift doesn't win this well to your point it was a record of its time and and not even of its year or or era but but really of like fall 2020 like it was it evoked the feeling that you wanted slash were already feeling during this fall pandemic uh just there was this 
this unease going into the holiday. There was so much going on that I feel like this album kind of encapsulated that feeling in a way that was very unique and cathartic. Yeah, and served as a balm. I mean, musically served as a balm, I think, in a lot of ways that even a lot of the music that I love that was so upbeat or sort of uh, celebratory, you know, it, it did it in a much different way that I think a lot of these other records didn't quite cover in the same degree. Yeah. Well, it will be super interesting to see uh, who is ultimately victorious when the Grammys air Sunday on CBS, uh, hosted by Trevor Noah. So we certainly will be checking that out here at the AV Club. I hope you will be watching as well. McLevy, thank you so much for being here to break all the nominations down. Uh, and we'll see We'll see uh, how, how right we were. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you know what my scorecard is afterwards. <laughs> sounds good. Sounds good. But uh, you listeners, please don't go anywhere yet because our senior writer Katie Reif recently chatted with The Good Fight and The Five Blood star Delroy Lindo. The actor is nominated as part of the ensemble of the Spike Lee film at the SAG Awards this year and is on the shortlist of those expected to get an Oscar nomination when those are announced on March 15. Uh, Katie spoke to Delroy all about filming Defy Bloods, including the amount of improv that went into releasing all that pent-up rage inside his character that we see released throughout the film. Uh, here's what he had to say about that and a lot more. So first I wanted to start, this is your fourth time working with Spike Lee, but the last time was in 1995 with Clockers. How did you feel teaming up with him again? Great. We had a wonderful uh, script. He was very excited. I was very excited. I had never been in Thailand before. Mm -hmm. There were all these elements that were really, really potentially very, very exciting. So I was elated. So there's kind of a famous story about you where you went to driving school for two months for a 20-minute car chase in Gone in 60 Seconds. Do you do that level of prep for all of your roles or was that kind of an exception? <laughs> um, I do a lot of prep. Mm-hmm. And on Gone in 60 Seconds, the producers, because there was a lot of driving, pretty much, I don't want to say mandated, but it was built into the pre-production for the actors. Mm-hmm. And I'm really, really glad that, that it was. So actually, certainly it's probably something I would have asked to do to go to driving school. But the producers, to their credit, uh, sent some of the actors to driving school because of the nature of that particular film. Mm-hmm. But the answer to your question is, um, yeah, I, I tend to do whatever research is possible to do that is going to connect me more strongly with the world of whatever film I am working on. What about this film? There's so much, you know, so many layers to just the yeah. history behind it. I wanted to try as much as possible, you know, to get inside the condition of PTSD. Mm-hmm. So I talked to lots of people about that, the first two of whom were my cousins, who both of whom were Vietnam vets. I spoke with other vets who spoke with me more broadly about their experiences in Nam, in Vietnam. I then ended up speaking with a retired major, uh, an African-American lady who had served in Iraq. And she was really, really helpful to me in terms of very specifically discussing her experiences with PTSD. I read a lot of books. I looked at a lot of film. And I was, you know, doing two things. I was trying as much as I could to connect with just the whole experience of Vietnam and what it meant, what it means to vets, while at the same time identifying aspects of PTSD that were usable for me as I was in the process of creating Paul. And when I say that, 
I don't mean, oh, I can use that to PTSD. I can use that in an example of PTSD, but just it's really exposing yourself to a lot of data and on some level hoping that things rub off by osmosis, mm-hmm. just steeping yourself as much as possible in the research, the data, and then hoping that it it, it impacts, not hoping, because I, I, I trust that it will have an impact in certain general and specific ways for the character that one is playing. So what were your particular challenges of portraying a character with PTSD in, I mean, in kind of translating that data that you read and the experiences you heard about into, you know, the physicality of the character and actual performance? Well, I don't think of it in terms of challenges. Mm. What I did trust was that step by step by step by step, I was bringing to the work that which needed to be brought, (laughs) if that makes sense. (laughs) You know what? I think I was so excited, so elated, so enervated at the prospect of playing this character because it's such a, because Paul is such a great character to play that one doesn't think about the challenges or one relishes the challenges. Mm. When you're relishing a challenge, it doesn't, it doesn't, one doesn't necessarily identify it as a challenge. Right. I'll give you, I'll give you another example. You, you mentioned, I think you mentioned Clockers. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when Spike asked me to do, to play Rodney in Clockers, clearly that is an individual who is very different than me. Uh, in actuality, and I've said this before, there were people who, when they heard that I was in clockers, they thought I would be, you know, better suited, quote unquote, to play the Keith David part. But Spike is entrusting me with, no, I think you, I want you to play Rodney. So that, you know, one relishes the challenge of bringing that to life. And immediately one just simply says to oneself, okay, jump on in, man. So I read the book twice, Richard Price's book, which which is the source material for the film. Mm -hmm. I meet with Richard Price. Richard, in the process of meeting Richard, Richard says to me, oh, well, you know, the character in the book is based on this cat who lives in Jersey City. So I said, oh, damn, well, let me meet him. So I go and I meet this gentleman that the character is based on. And while and I ha- and I hang out with him again, all the while I'm, ex- I'm 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 investing in this data, what I you know this information. And um, not only not only did I meet and hang out with the character that my character Rodney was based on, I also then met and connected and hung out with the character that the Keith David character was based on, okay. a police officer who 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 was based in the projects in Jersey City. And I hung out with him. So I'm getting both sides of the, of the coin, both sides of the experience. And all of that, you know, it's like you're putting all this information into the hopper and you're swirling it around. You put it in a blender and you blend it up and then you, you, you start to um, select what is useful mm-hmm. for the work, work at hand. Uh, Something else that I've heard actors say before is that sometimes uh, being in a location can help them locate a character. 
and this film was shot in Thailand and a little bit in Vietnam, I believe. Uh, yeah. Thailand. Yeah. Uh, did that help you get into character? I, your character speaks a little bit of Vietnamese in the movie. Yeah. Yes, yes, and yes. It all helped. It absolutely helped. You know, could we have done the film in Pasadena? Probably not. Mm. Um, could we have done it on a soundstage? I mean, yeah, but obviously it would not have been the same. So the answer, my answer to your question is yes. Being in the location absolutely helped. Aside from the fact that the majesty of Thailand and Vietnam, just the physical majesty of the topography impacts one. I remember time and time and time and time again in between setups, just going, walking and, and sitting and taking in where in the world I was. Mm -hmm. And that terrain is so majestic. And frankly, it's a character in the film in the same way that Terrence Blanchard's music is a character in the film. And it absolutely contributed to being able to tell the story mm -hmm. in the way it needed to be told. Abs absolutely. One thing that Spike Lee is, one of his signatures is he often works Black history into his narratives. And you certainly see that in this film. Is that something that is discussed a lot on set or worked into your prep? Absolutely not. It speaks directly to Spike's genius. Mm. Spike Lee's particular genius as a, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller. That's Spike's vision. All I know is that, you know, I'm to the extent that he's asking me to play a character in, in, this, in this particular story. And my job is to flesh that out to the best of my ability. Um, but I, I think it's his genius that he doesn't say, say well, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this. We're just focused on the scenes at hand mm -hmm. uh, and telling the story of the scene that ultimately will create the overall story that is told. Now, having said that, I will say to you that when Spike offered me clockers, he called me up and he said, I want to put the nail in the coffin of this kind of film, man. And I am, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he did say nail in the coffin. I want to put a nail in the coffin of this. Me, and, and I took that to mean not so much that he wanted to make a definitive, you know, urban drama, but that told me that he had a certain kind of incisive direction that he, as storyteller, wanted to take this story. And that was, you know, clarifying for me. And again, it was not that I sat down and said, oh, but it, I don't know. It just, it identified something for me in terms of his intentions yeah. as storyteller. And in, 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 in identifying that, it sharpened what I considered my uh, contribution should be. That makes sense. Absolutely. Um, so one thing in this film that uh, I read an interview that you did a few days ago at The Independent where you said that you kind of had a negative reaction at first to reading the script and the character of Paul, him being a Republican. So let me just clarify the, the, the prospect of playing a MAGA hat wearing person gave me pause. Mm -hmm. I guess the question I asked myself was, okay. I would never cast that vote myself. So the fact that this person did cast this vote, I had to identify how and why he could get to a point that he cast that vote. And I was able to do that in, as part of my preparation. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, this character, he he's very intense throughout the, a lot of the film. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I, had, I hadn't noticed, Katie. I hadn't noticed <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you knew this. Oh, wow. Oh, man, I, I didn't know that. Dang. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a very layered thing where there's this rage in him, but there's also a lot of sadness and disillusionment. And we find out later in the film, you know, that there's other aspects to it. I'm not going to spoil it, but there's sort yeah. of a hidden element to it. Yeah. Um, let me just, before you ask your question, let me just say something, something um, quote unquote, in defense of Paul. Mm-hmm. Because obviously people, they talk about the intensity and they talk about the rage. And again, you're entirely, um, it is entirely your prerogative to use whatever language you wish. But I always feel compelled to correct the description of rage. Mm-hmm. Um, anguish is a better word. Right. Um, from my, just so you know, from my standpoint, because you can't, you, uh, in a funny kind of way, you can't, and this is process, okay. you can't play rage, believe it or not. Well, what I mean by that, you're thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Huh? You can't. Um, you have to identify what is fueling whatever that given emotional condition is. You got to identify what's fueling this, what's causing this response. So the end product may be rage, but that's not what's internally. Um, that's not what's going on internally. So please a- ask your question. Oh well, I was just going to ask. Um kind of the different sort of nuances of kind of carrying those emotions in the character, because, you know, I'm thinking of the scene early on where he says I'm broken, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is directly, you know, connected to the, the, the relationship of myself, Paul with Norm. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also connected to, the fact of having lost my wife in childbirth and it's connected to how that has impacted my relationship with my son, which is estranged in the extreme mm-hmm. because in, in that same scene, I talk about the fact that Otis, you know, has a family and his relationship with his family is so much healthier and his, his relationship to his family and his life is so much more together than mine is. And that's why I refer to myself as, as broken. So the, the camaraderie between these men is a really important part of the film. And something that I notice is a lot of times they're kind of observing each other's emotional states and discussing them. So what was the dynamic like between the actors on set? I never get tired of, dis- of discussing this. The fact that we were out in the jungle, as you say, the fact that we were where we were just enhanced the relationship and was directly parallel to aspects of the relationships that a lot of vets, the young kids, I imagine, had who were in Nam from the standpoint of having to depend on each other. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we were bonding so strongly off screen fed directly into the work that we were doing on screen. And that was a beautiful, and that was a beautiful thing to be a part of. Yeah. Um, Doesn't happen every day. Doesn't happen a lot, but it happened in spades. Um, (laughs) No pun intended on this film. So 
was it like a small crew out there? Like when you're filming the jungle scenes in the second half of the film, was it just the actors and then a small crew? Like how many people were going out, you know? No, the reverse is true. Oh. Um, there were scores of people mm. in the crew. And that's, that's important because it was also inspiring. It was inspiring to be a part of and to observe. I've spoken frequently about the ethic, the work ethic of the Thai and the Vietnamese crew, just how hard they worked, how strongly they applied themselves to the work at hand. And their work involved hauling tons of equipment up and down those hills right. in that terrain. I didn't oftentimes step back and say, oh my God, these, these guys are working really hard. I didn't do that a lot, but at certain points, I was in awe of those guys, man. Males and females hauling really heavy ass equipment up and down those hills. And I and I and again I've spoken in the past about this one day in particular because it was a day when we were filming the chopper scene. So okay. we were on a, we were we were not in the terrain. We were we were in a kind of a soundstage type situation. And I just I said to Spike, man. This crew is extraordinary, Spike. This, these, these guys are amazing, man. Just the way that they work and work and work and work. And that was just, I'll tell you, just a gift to be a part of. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, I could step back and really acknowledge and, and appreciate their work ethic. But it also impacted my work ethic in as much as I was inspired to work <laughs> at least as hard as they were working. <laughs> God, dog, you know, if they can do that, then I, I've got to do my job. I, I didn't deconstruct it in those kinds of terms. Right. I absolutely appreciated what they were doing and it was inspiring. But I think it lifted me to, hey, I, I gotta, I, I've got to do my job too. If they can do that, then I have to do my job also. One scene that I think is really striking in terms of your performance in this film is the scene on the boat where uh, Paul has a panic attack. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, walk me through the filming of that scene. What was going on that day? It seems like a very chaotic location with a lot of people, like, and you're trying to get to this very um, vulnerable place. Uh, tell me about that. Wow. That is such a beautiful scene. Once again, you know, you as audience are seeing one thing, and me as a as a as a worker inside of the scene, I am appreciating very different things. Mm -hmm. So, one of the most beautiful aspects of that scene on the boat, and that may be weird for you to hear me say to refer to it as beautiful, from a creative and from a technical standpoint, much of what happened on the boat was improvised. <laughs> Oh, right. Wow. Okay. Right. Now, this is this is this was the part that was improvised. Uh, Jonathan's character and the reacting to the, the snake, the lady with the snake, that was in the script. The okay. person buying the beer, selling and buying the beer, that was in the script. The person who comes up on the boat and tries to sell me, I think, oranges, I think, or something, that was in the script. The gentleman coming and trying to sell me a chicken, that was in the script. But everything that transpired. After that, was improvised, improvised up to and including my response to the, the, the cat trying to sell me the chicken, 
yes, there was no him trying to sell me the chicken. And my response, no, I don't want the chicken. That was in the script. But everything that transpires after that was improvised. And that's what's that's what makes the scene special because it became what it became. And Spike, we, the actors worked on that and we, we just were working. And I think Spike was in the process of setting the shot up. And by the time Spike was ready to, to formally set the shot up, we said, we had it, Spike, just watch what we did. And we showed him what we had done. And that scene is now in the film. Wow, that's extraordinary. Honestly, yes, a powerful scene. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, and yes, and that's exciting to be a part of as an actor. Yeah. Now again, Katie, when none of us are saying, "Oh God, this is exciting," but it just worked. It worked. The staging of it worked. You know how we got from me sitting at one end of the boat. And having the altercation with the young man trying to sell me the chicken, and then there restraining me from 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 attacking, uh, or not attacking, but responding to his insults, what I perceive as insults, mm-hmm. and him saying, "Yeah, you 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 killed my father." Spike told him to say that at a certain point. When Spike saw what we were doing, he told the actor to say, um, and I don't know that that young man spoke English, frankly, mm. but he told him. I found out after the fact that Spike told him to accuse me, you killed my father, which then set me off again. Right. So all of that was created in the moment. And that's what makes it special, Katie. Because we were all working as a team together, not only to tell the story, but to enhance the story. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you, you know, perceive it as a panic attack, Mm -hmm. that's good because it goes right to the heart of, Part of Paul's, for want of a better term, no, I'm not, I, I was going to use the term pathology. It goes to the heart of Paul's anguish, the anguish and the disconnectedness. But then the coming together, because this, as you know, the, the scene ends with us, all of us putting our fists up. Mm-hmm. Bloods, norm, do not forget why we are here. So, yeah, those kinds of instances that's one of the reasons that made this and make this such a special creative enterprise yeah well one more uh towards the end of the film there's an extended sequence you know we cut in and out of it where uh paul where your character he's in the jungle alone and he's kind of monologuing straight to camera yeah Uh, was all that in the script? And I just wonder, this is sort of a general acting question. Do you have to stay in that kind of headspace all day? Or is that something that you can like channel and turn on? We shot the scene in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I prepared because we it was, if not the first scene up, one of the first scenes up. So it's not like I had to stay in that headspace all day. But I was prepared in the morning when we were ready to do the scene. Technically, Spike had told me that I would speak directly into the camera. He mm-hmm. had told me that weeks prior. So I knew that just from a te- technical standpoint. And because it was so much dialogue, um, so many words, mm-hmm. um, I had had to kind of commit the words to memory, which I would not ordinarily have done. I would have you know, ordinarily preferred to arrive at saying those words more organically in the process of working out the scene. But I, I, I knew that I did not have that luxury because 
A, it was just me mm -hmm. talking to the camera. And so I had a few weeks of prep to, to, to commit the words to memory and then try to embed those words emotionally with why I'm saying those words. And so by the time we, the morning that we filmed, I had a very clear sense of how I wanted to approach it and what those words meant to me and why. Why, why am I saying this at this time? And um, so I was as prepared as I could be. And um, as we started to work, Spike embraced what I was doing. And, and when I say he embraced what I was doing, what I mean by that is we did a number of takes. And it wasn't, we weren't doing a number of takes because I wasn't doing it right, quote unquote. We were doing a number of takes and you'd have to ask Spike from his standpoint, but we were doing the takes because he was appreciating, he was embracing what I was doing. Mm. And each take, and each take we did, slightly different things would happen. For the vast, the, the, the words that were on the page were there. That was what was written. But every now and again, I would add a couple of things. And he embraced that and included that. And so that led me to believe that he was appreciating what I was doing. And I do remember, I don't know, a couple of takes in, three, four takes in, overhearing, you know, leave him alone. He's in the zone. Leave him alone. Don't bother him. <laughs> Roll the camera. Action. Go. And so, you know, all of that is really, really, um, that's just really positive and affirming, Katie. You know, we want to please our director. We want to tell the story. And I don't mean that, you know, from the standpoint of being obsequious. We want to tell the story. We want to be collaborators with the storytellers, uh, principally our director, and tell the story that he wants to tell. And at that point, that particular scene, I felt that I was contributing, not only in a way that was telling the story that Spike wanted to tell, but that in some instances I was enhancing it. I was yeah. adding to it. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that's, that, that's like the ideal outcome for an actor. That is. That, that absolutely is. That's right. Yeah. Um, so one more thing before we go, are you aware that there's a t-shirt company that made a t-shirt that says nominate Delroy Lindo, you cowards? <laughs> I'm totally not. Yeah. There's a t-shirt wow. there advocating for you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, on the one hand, God bless them, whoever they are. And on the other hand, my God, I hope it doesn't backfire. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hope they don't say, who the fuck are you to tell us who to nominate? Fuck you. Excuse my language. Um, but that's that's actually very beautiful. No, I, I did not know that. No, that's actually really, um, <laughs> that's really humbling, actually. <laughs> and thank them whoever they are thank them so much i did not know that thank you i will well that's going to do it for this week's episode of push the envelope you can see if delroy lindo and his the five blood castmates win big at the sag awards airing on tnt and tbs on april 4th you can also see if his name is among those listed as an oscar nominee on march 15th Speaking of that, we will be back next week with another all-new episode of Push the Envelope, where we will discuss a little bit about those nominations, as well as decompress after the Grammys and look ahead to these SAG Awards. We've got so much more coming as we head into the home stretch of award season. Uh, until then, please remember to like and comment and subscribe wherever you found this podcast. We so appreciate it. Continue to check out avclub.com for our ongoing award season coverage. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, and suggestions, you can find me on Twitter at 
Patrick Gomez LA. Until next week, bye. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.